And if you have a Bible with you to open them up, as I encourage Steve and Judith to come and help bring our readings today. And Judith is going to take us to the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. And then Steve's going to read uh, Luke's New Testament passage from John chapter 3. And then Steve's going to pray as Luke comes to share with us. So thank you both. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse and all people on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left, as the Lord had said, and the Lord went with him. And Abraham was 75 years old when he, was set, when he set out from Haran. And so then from John chapter 3. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 
I invite Luke to come up and I'll pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this time that we have together this morning. We thank you that it is a time that we can come and worship, but also a time that we can come and receive. And so we pray that you bless Luke's preparation and the words that he has uh, been given on his heart to share with us this morning. Make us receptive to what you are saying to us. Open our eyes, open our hearts. Help us leave here as changed people this morning, knowing more about who it is, uh, who, who we are and who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you, Steve. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning as we come to our second instalment of our Lent series, Giving It Up, where during this Lent season, we're talking about looking at things. We're not going to simply give up for 40 days and then take them up again, but we are choosing to make a conscious choice not simply to give up things which will benefit our waistline, but will help us and have a significant impact on our walk with Christ. Because ultimately, that is what it is all about. We're not after temporary wins, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're after him changing and transforming us to make us more like Jesus. Last week, if you were here, you might remember that we looked at two different passages together. We looked at the account of Adam and Eve, and we looked at the account of Jesus in the wilderness. We looked at how one turned their back on God and went their own way, and we looked at how Jesus obeyed him. We saw how Adam and Eve seized control, and Jesus trusted in God. And the conclusion that we came to is that trust is the antidote to seizing control. You see, when we fail to trust someone, we seek to control a situation, perhaps because we doubt the person that we are supposed to trust has the capabilities to follow through on the things that they are supposed to do and complete a task. And so often, we fail to trust God because we won't think he's going to come through for us in a situation, so we seek to take that situation into our own hands and seize control. And this Lent season, we're looking at how we can lay down our need for control and to trust him more. Today, as we think about the next thing that we are going to lay down in order to become more Christ-like, we're going to open up a little bit of the two passages that we have heard read for us this morning and ask ourselves the question, what expectations in our lives is God calling us to lay down in order to live the life that God is calling us to live? The dictionary defines an expectation like this. Expectations are your strong hopes or beliefs that something will happen or that you will get something that you want. You see, the fact of the matter is, we all have expectations, don't we? Before you were even born, expectations were placed upon your life. That you would be born either as a boy or a girl. That you would be born healthy. That you would eventually walk and talk and be potty trained. That you would go to school and you would eventually get good grades. And hopefully the expectation, therefore, would be that you would end up with a good job. I have expectations on you this morning. I am expecting you to listen to what I am going to say and hopefully you are going to get something out of it too. 
And then there are expectations that we put on our own lives, aren't there? I'll find a partner, I'll get married, I'll have children, I'll buy a house, I'll get a good job, because that's the expectations that the world says that I should have, and that's the expectations that the world says my life should go down. I don't know what expectations that you have put on your life are, but the problem is, often when we think about expectations, we soon realize that life doesn't always go according to our expectations. And God certainly doesn't work to them. I can think of a number of areas in my life where I've had expectations on certain things and it hasn't turned out like that. I was there in 2008 at Wembley Stadium watching Portsmouth lift the FA Cup. Premier League Portsmouth lift the FA Cup. When they did, I expected them to go on and be one of the heavy hitters of the Premier League, but now we find ourselves languishing in League One, albeit only for 11 games more. On a serious note, I expected my parents to be around to see my kids grow up. But at the age of 34 years old, both my parents had passed away. I expected my mum to be there to help out and to cheer my children on as they went through every stage of life, but they never actually met them. I remember when I was at college as well. One of my closest friends when I was at college studying in Bristol was a lady called Anne. She was in her mid 50s at the time, and we got on like a house on fire. She was an incredibly wise woman, probably one of the only people who could turn around to me and say at times, Luke, you're being an idiot, and I'd say, thank you for telling me. She had this way about her, and we both led very similar churches, both very small churches that we've been put in, looked on the outside like they were dying, and over the course of our time at college, we saw God do amazing things and grow the churches that we were pastoring. So we would often bounce ideas and situations and circumstances off one another. And we would spend time every week talking these things through. In fact, to get to college every week, for me, I had to leave home at about 7 a.m., but I would find myself getting up at 5 a.m. every single Wednesday to go to college so we could have a coffee together before college started. And every week, she would greet me with the same greeting. I'd walk in and she would say simply, hello, pastor. And every week, we would talk and we would look at what God was doing in our lives. And she was an incredible, incredible pastor. And she would say to me often, Luke, I've got one church in me. I'm quite old. I've got one church in me. And then after that, I'm going to come to your church and I'm going to be the batty, charismatic old woman who sits at the back shouting hallelujah at everything the pastor says, dancing in the aisles and raising the roof. And we finished college and we kept in touch. And about 18 months later, we were due to meet up for lunch together in Bristol. And she texted me on the morning and said, Luke, I'm not very well. I'm not going to be able to make it today. I'm really sorry. I said, no worries, we'll rearrange. I was up in Bristol about a month later. I was using the library to do some study up at the college. And she messaged me again and she said to me, Luke, the reason that I couldn't meet you the other week is I've just found out I've got a brain tumor. But don't worry, God's not finished with me yet. I'm going to be all right. The situation 
it's going to be fine. And we would message each other over the course of the next few months or so. And she sent me a message one morning and said, Luke, I really need to see you quite soon. Is there any chance we can get together? And I said, yep, don't worry. She lived in Gloucester. I said, I'm coming up to Birmingham in a couple of weeks for a meeting. I'll come in and I'll pop in and I'll see you on my way up. About a week later, the communication went cold. I didn't know what had gone on, but I was at a prayer meeting on a particular Friday morning. We have a 6 a.m. prayer meeting at my previous church, and a guy comes in, and he's hobbling, and he says, I really, really hurt my knee. I said, don't worry, I'll pray for your knee this morning, and you know, believe God's a healer, so let's pray for your knee. So I placed my hand on his knee, and I prayed here in that moment that God would heal his knee. And as I prayed for this man, I felt a pop in his knee. And his knee was healed. This is amazing. God, you're so good. So good that you've done this this morning. Thank you, God. A couple of hours later, I got a text message. Luke, I just want to tell you, Anna's passed away. God, you can heal a knee, but a brain is too far. That's one step beyond what you can do. I was so angry. Why? This man would have got better in a few days on his own. I'm sure about it. He just hurt his knee playing tennis. And yet this person who was doing such good work, seeing amazing things happen in her context, had so much more to give, has passed away. Why, God? I just don't understand it. You know... The truth is, God doesn't work in the way that we always want him to work. God doesn't move according to our expectations and do things the way we think should happen. Even to this day, you know, there are days when I find myself feeling low and I just long to hear that woman say to me, hello, pastor. But for some reason, God said, no, that's not the way that things are going to go. The truth is, I expected the God to move in one way, and he didn't. And you know what? We see that throughout Scripture too, don't we? There are several accounts, if we were to look at different people in the Bible, people like uh, Paul and people like Peter who find themselves imprisoned, and we see the church praying for these people. And what happens? Miraculous things happen, and they're released from prison, and the whole church rejoices as a result of it. But then... We can think of someone like John the Baptist, who we talked a little bit about last week, who Jesus described as, of those born of a woman, there was none greater. He finds himself in prison. What happens? He gets his head chopped off. God, did you miss that one? Did you get that one wrong? Why? If this is the greatest man born of a woman, why has he had his head chopped off? I just don't understand. You see, the fact of the matter is, we all have expectations about how we think God should move. And the problem is that when our expectations go unmet, it can leave us feeling a little bit bitter, a little bit cynical, and sometimes it can leave us wanting to walk away from our faith. Today, as we open up these two accounts from Scripture, we see people who would have had certain expectations of God, certain expectations of how things should go and how life should be. And what I want us to see today is God doesn't work to our expectations. 
So there may be things in your life right now that you are hoping for, wishing for, longing for, yearning for, and for whatever reason, they haven't come to pass up until this point. That doesn't mean that they won't come to pass, but unhealthy expectations can cause a block in our relationship with God. And the call from God today, I believe, is to lay down some of those expectations and allow him to work out his plans and his purposes for our life. In our first account today, we touch on a story of a man we briefly introduced last week, a man named Abraham, a man who was 75 years old when we're introduced to him here. He probably had plans for his life. He probably thought to himself, I'm getting old, I know how life is going to go, I know what is going to happen, I've got things figured out. And then one day, all of that changes. He meets with God who tells him he has a plan for him. Abraham, I want you to leave everything that you know, all your family, all your friends, all the people around you, all your security, and I want you to follow me. I'm going to take you to a land that you do not own, but there, Abraham, in that place, I'm going to unfold my plans for you and unfold my plans for the world. Can you fathom how Abraham must have felt in that moment for a second? But God, this is not how I thought my life might go at this stage. Are you sure, God, that you've got the right person? In many ways, it's a similar call to the call that Jesus gives to his disciples, isn't it? When he told them to leave their fishing nets, leave everything that they know, leave their family, their friends, and to follow him. Abraham responded to God in a way that God knew that he would. He put down the things that he had and he followed God. He followed him where he was called to go. And you know... The disciples, they did the same. They left their fishing nets. They left their boats. They left their families and their livelihoods for the promise of Jesus who said, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And again, I don't know what expectations those in these two accounts would have had, but they're two similar stories in many respects, but they turn out very differently. Abraham was rich in terms of the number of days that God allowed him to see. His offspring eventually filled the earth, and Jesus was one of those offspring. But the story of the disciples, that turned out very differently. They paid the price for following Jesus. They were persecuted, they were beaten, they were imprisoned. Many of them ended up losing their lives for the sake of the gospel. And think about the Jewish people that were around at that time as well. For the Jewish nation, there had been years and years of longing and waiting and hoping for the Messiah to come. In fact, there are 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And they expected the coming Messiah to come and free them from physical oppression, to overthrow the ruling Roman government, except... That's not how the king came. He came lowly and riding on a donkey. God doesn't work according to our expectations. So honing in a little bit further on our New Testament passage today, looking at that account from the Gospel of John, we see Jesus meeting with a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He would have been one of the members of what was known as the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling religious authority of the day. He would have been a man who was highly respected. 
He would have been a man of good standing. And Nicodemus probably would have expected that he had eternal life based on who he was. But Jesus has this encounter with him. And the fact that he comes to Jesus in the dead of night tells us a lot. He doesn't come in the dead of night because Jesus is a busy man and his schedule is so full and that's the only time that he can fit him in. The fact that he comes in the dead of night, even those words, John is trying to tell us something about him. You see, the contrast between light and dark is a theme which runs throughout the Gospel of John. We read at the beginning of the Gospel, don't we, that the light shines in the darkness. And Jesus describes himself as the light of the world. So the fact that we read here in John chapter 3 that Nicodemus comes in the dead of night is significant. Nicodemus is walking in darkness. And John is telling us in this statement that at this point in time at least, Nicodemus is a long way from faith. Nicodemus is far from faith in Jesus, but what our passage shows us today is that Nicodemus is a man who is full of knowledge. He says this in John chapter 3, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God does not allow him to. He comes to Jesus as one speaking with authority and speaking on behalf of others. We know all about you, Jesus. We know exactly who you are. We know exactly what you can do. And in a sense, Nicodemus speaks for all of us at times, doesn't he? So often, we come to God thinking that we have got God all figured out. We come with this faulty assumption that because over time we have accumulated knowledge about God, it's reasonable for us to believe that God will act and move in certain ways when we're faced with certain situations in our life. And Jesus responds to Nicodemus that day with a direct question in a direct manner. He effectively says to Nicodemus, these are your expectations, Nicodemus, but in reality, this is your greatest need. You see, the problem for Nicodemus is that his faith wasn't faulty, but it was too small. It was fit for the middle of the night, but it was not yet ready for the fullness, the expanse of the light of day. It's obscured. It's based on expectations, which fall far short of the possibilities that exist in the love and the mercy of a God who so loved the world that he gave his only son. And it's so often true, isn't it, of what we think that we know when it comes to God. We make these assumptions, but in reality, our expectations always fall far short. You see, when John, for example, uses the words in John 3, chapter six, uh, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The word that is translated world in our Bibles can actually be translated as someone who has an, ent an entity which is hostile to God's will. So John 3:16 could be translated for God so loved the God haters. 
You see, Nicodemus had one expectation of what it meant to be saved, and yet what Jesus does is he says, no, 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 it's far bigger than that. It's not based upon what you know, but it's based upon who God is. God doesn't simply fit nice and neatly into our expectations. Rather, he is able to do far more than you could ever hope, dream, or imagine. And over the course of the conversation, Jesus shocks Nicodemus, who takes the stance of being born again quite literally in this conversation. And what Jesus does is he takes Nicodemus from a stance of being able to say, we know, to a stance of how can this be? In a sense, Jesus breaks down those expectations and what he does in the life of Nicodemus is he brings back a sense of awe and wonder. A realization that we don't have God all figured out. That we don't have all the answers. That we are not the ones who see the end from the beginning. We could look at other expectations in scripture can't we and other stories like this in scripture take mary for example whose life expectations were completely blown out of the water when she was visited by an angel and said you're going to have a child out of wedlock who is going to be the savior of the world and she went from this state of saying how can this be to i am the lord's servant let it be as you say And I wonder, in those times when we think we have life all figured out, I should be married by now, I should have kids by now, why are my kids behaving like this? My job is not what I expected it to be. Life is not going down the path that I wanted it to go. Instead of allowing resentment at times to creep into our life because of our unmet expectations, we need to allow ourselves to wonder again. To look upon God with fresh eyes. To realize that even though we can't see the whole map, He does. To understand that even when our life takes unexpected twists and turns, that God is still on the throne. And really, the heart of the matter is this. We are called to live by faith and not by expectations. One of my favorite passages in scripture is Hebrews chapter 11. It's known as the hall of faith. It contains absolute heroes of scripture who lived by faith. And it starts with these words. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not yet seen. We haven't got time to open the passage up this morning, but I'd encourage you to go away and look at it for yourself. In this passage, it mentions Abraham, who we've spoken about today. It mentions Enoch, who the Bible says walked with God. It mentions Noah, who built an ark even when he couldn't see rain. It mentions Isaac. It mentions Jacob, Joseph, and Moses. It mentions Daniel and David. It mentions Rahab, among other people. All people who lived by extraordinary faith. But you know the amazing thing about every single person which is mentioned in the Hall of Faith, Hebrews chapter 11? We read it in Hebrews 11, verse 39. And it says this, These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, that only together with us would they be made perfect. 
You see that? These people of faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. That is extraordinary, isn't it? And that's how we are called to live too. Not with a sense of entitlement. Because everyone's story, everyone's journey is different and it all doesn't look the same. But we are called to live by faith. Trusting that God's promises are true even when it doesn't look like our expectations are going to be fulfilled. So what does giving up expectations look like practically? For Abraham, it meant releasing the expectations of what he thought life was going to be like in his old age and being obedient to the call of God that had been placed on his life. And he does what God asks him to do. And how does the story of Nicodemus end? This man who came to Jesus in the dead of night. Well, later on in Scripture we read that he stands up and he defends Jesus. Then much later, when it appeared to be all over, when everything seemed dark and people were wondering what was next, because this man that they had followed, their expectations seemingly had not been met, and he had died on a cross. Nicodemus joins Joseph of Arimathea in preparing the crucified body of Jesus. And then he's not heard of again. At this point, maybe he thought it was all over. I don't know. But then, the next day, perhaps, perhaps, he was close by when the sun was rising and Mary went to visit the tomb and Jesus' body wasn't there. And she ran throughout the place, calling all believers in Jesus and telling them that he is alive. Wherever the journey of Nicodemus eventually took him, his journey went from a place of certainty to a place of awe and wonder. And for so many heroes of faith in Scripture, living without expectations meant trusting in the promises of God even when they didn't see them fulfilled. So therefore, laying down our expectations looks like obedience. God, I'll do what you call me to do. It looks like wonder. God, I don't know how this is going to pan out, but I know that you do. So I'm trusting in you. And it looks like faith. What does it look like for you? What expectations is God calling you to lay down today? Let me be clear. By laying down our expectations doesn't mean those things won't happen in our life. Rather, it's the call to live life in such a way that whatever the future might bring, just as those heroes of faith saw in Scripture, even if our life doesn't pan out the way that we had expected or thought that it would, that we can still know the fullness of joy in God because His plans for our lives are good. Laying down expectations is again an act of trust choosing to make him Lord over everything. So this morning, church, this Lent season, as we seek to lay down those areas of our life which can get in the way of knowing Jesus, let's choose to make a conscious choice by examining ourselves, examining our hearts, and giving it to God's.